happy Halloween, everyone. It's time to eat, drink, and be scary. Welcome to the 28th of October, 2022 episode of the Greenwich Town for All Seasons show podcast. It's hosted by me. I'm Jeffrey Bingham Mead, a direct descendant of the 17th century founders of the town of Greenwich, Connecticut, long known as the gateway to New England. Now park your brooms at the door and come sit for the Halloween chills and thrills. 2022 podcast for a spell. Founded on July 18, 1640, Greenwich, Connecticut is one of America's most interesting and extraordinary communities. It's a special place we call home. Whether your roots go back nearly 400 years as mine do, or even 400 seconds or somewhere in between, whether you're here to stay or just passing through, well, we welcome you with open arms. Now, I have a confession to make. I'm dying to have a fantastic, fun-filled Halloween with you. This only comes once a year, a time for shivers, scares, and thrills for pumpkin grins in windowsills, for black cats in the full moon's glow, and to all near and far, a happy Halloween hello. The Greenwich Town for All Seasons show podcast is made possible by Site Design Associates, the Long Island Sound Institute, the Ambassador Museum of the United States of America, Kevin M.J. O'Connor of Jeffrey Matthews Wealth Management, and listeners like you everywhere. Coming up on today's show. Well, trick or treat, everybody. On today's annual Halloween 28th of October 2022 show, we're going to travel back in history to a period the late historian William E. Finch Jr. referred to as the flowering of Greenwich, when the word Greenwich was synonymous with the word millionaire. Now, thanks to the Junior League of Greenwich, they published many years ago the Greatest States Greenwich, Connecticut, 1880-1930 book. It's wonderful. I strongly recommend it. And we're going to visit Old Mill Farm in Round Hill. It is known today as Foundation House. On Greenwich before 2000, we're going to travel back to the years 1779 and 1780, which was during the American Revolutionary War era. You hear about how costume freaks cavorted one Halloween night at Bush Holly House in Costco, but when it was a gathering place for American Impressionists. You also hear about how people in Greenwich, Connecticut's history celebrated Halloween at such places as the Greenwich Country Club, private homes, and elsewhere in the dawning years of the 20th century. Now, did you know that we have over 63 cemeteries and burying grounds dotting the town's landscape? Well, it's true. I'm going to share some history about a few of these places in Greenwich. And on the judge's corner, Judge Frederick Hubbard wrote about Rockefeller Park, and I'm going to share that with you as well. I'll have more about Discover Greenwich, creating a sense of place, celebrating the 90th year anniversary of the Greenwich Historical Society's founding. You'll hear about exhibits, activities, and events open to the public. My friends, Halloween year 2022 has arrived. You've come to the right place to learn about the history of the town of Greenwich, Connecticut, one of America's most interesting and extraordinary communities. We're going to have all this and more as history continues to unfold. Stay tuned. We'll be right back after these important messages. Make Site Design Associates of Greenwich, Connecticut your choice when it comes to taking your beautiful landscaped property to the next level. An award-winning landscape architecture studio since 1979, Site Design Associates places a high value on a unique multidisciplinary approach to landscape design and development 
that is second to none. From analysis to construction to maintenance with 35 years of experience, Site Design Associates offers services that are collaborative and visionary with each client's unique style in mind. Offices are located at 777 West Putnam Avenue in Greenwich, Connecticut. Call 203-869-6895 or go online to learn more at sitedesignassociates.com. The Long Island Sound Institute understands that a bright environmental future relies on brilliant ideas and methods. A special initiative by Site Design Associates, LISI is a community of diverse professionals, researchers, academics, and concerned citizens, harnessing the powers of imagination and innovation to achieve the ecological balance and conservation of Long Island Sound for present and future generations. It aims to use modern planning and the implementation of new technologies to conserve Long Island Sound, looking forward to a bright future of effective leadership. To learn more about the Long Island Sound Institute, go online to lisistudy.info or call 203-869-8632. The Ambassador Museum, United States of America, is a tribute to those Americans who served the nation on the international scene as ambassadors in the American diplomatic corps. There has never been a museum specifically dedicated to ambassadors. The museum's founders and supporters are committed to achieving its educational mission with programs and events for high school and college students. My friends, you can learn more by contacting the Ambassador Museum, United States of America, by calling 203-869-8632, right to Box 5002, Greenwich, Connecticut, 06831, or go online at amusa.info. Well, thank you, Kevin M.J. O'Connor, Vice President of Jeffrey Matthews Wealth Management, knowledgeable in the complexities of the financial markets with a passion for servicing clients and their financial needs. My friends, learn more at jeffreymatthews.com or call Kevin M.J. O'Connor at his Greenwich office, telephone 203-485-7595. Again, that's Kevin M.J. O'Connor his Greenwich office at 203-485-7595. When I was a columnist with Greenwich Time, one of the subjects that people probably enjoyed uh, reading about were uh, matters to do with uh, haunted houses and Halloween parties and cemeteries and burying grounds and so on and so forth. There was an article that uh, was published in the Greenwich Time. In fact, it was published on November 2nd, 1986. Uh, and um, we have a transcription of this on a blog site that I maintain. It's um, my writings, actually, of uh, articles that were uh, published in the Greenwich Time uh, back in the day. Um, you can go and peruse that uh, if you'd like to. It's almost all about uh, Greenwich, Connecticut's history. And the web address for that is writings of Jeffrey Bingham Mead. 
.blogspot.com. Of course, that's me. <laughs> and uh, I was born and raised, of course, here in Greenwich. And uh, uh, these are the transcriptions with some uh, colorful photos of articles that I wrote. There was one uh, that, um, that was published in 1986 titled Freaks and Phantoms Cavort at the Holly Inn. Of course, I'm referring to the Bush Holly House, the headquarters of the Greenwich uh, Historical Society. Um, back in an earlier time, of course, it was the Holly Inn, uh, and it was the headquarters of the Koskob uh, American Impressionist Art Colony. They had some very interesting parties back in the day, and uh, there was one that um, was held there uh, during uh, a particular Halloween holiday. And uh, I'd like to just share the, um, uh, the text of this article with you. So sit back and just listen. You know, I think that you'll enjoy this. Um, history a dull subject to some, when revealed to its fullest, is colorful, stimulating, and even humorous. This recent Halloween holiday brings back to this diligent writer-historian an incident he ran across which occurred in the annals of local history at the turn of the century in Kaskab. The occasion was a rather unique Halloween party at the Bush Holly House on Strickland Road. In those days, it was the home of notable ladies and gentlemen who had stayed during the preceding summer season at this famous historical landmark. For an autumn evening, the Holly Inn was transformed into a haven for freaks, spirits, demons, and poltergeists. With the arrival of each guest, he or she was given a pumpkin and a knife with instructions to carve the pumpkin into the features of a face resembling one of the other celebrants. As one could imagine, with so many sculptors, artists, and portrait painters present, the faces of the pumpkins surely were realistic and works of art in themselves, as the Holly Inn was a favorite artist colony in those distant days. In no time at all, the autumn sun dipped low in the western horizon, yielding to the hours of darkness. With the windows shades down, and many fireplaces that dot the interior of the Holly Inn were kindling with inviting blazing fires, the rooms were decorated with the carved grotesque jack-o'-lantern sculpted by those in attendance, with illuminated faces flickering with ghoulish laughter as evening set in. At 6.30, a gong reverberated throughout the halls. The time to dress for dinner and costume arrived, and the many guests clambered to the nearest dressing room available. The costume worn by each guest was kept in strictest confidence until the dinner hour. To say the least, the costumes worn that night bordered on the eccentric. The guest list that night read like a who's who of artists and Holly Inn patrons. Mrs. Edward Holly came as a beautiful Circassian lady. Now, by the way, I have to inject uh, here. I have no idea what a Circassian lady is. You can look that up on your own. Back to the article. With artist Elmer McRae as a bearded lady and his wife as a, quote, wild woman of Borneo, unquote. Borneo, of course, being in Indonesia, as we know it today. Miss A. Barlow and Miss Louise Cameron Walter came as Siamese twins with Miss Annabelle, Mary Annabelle Fenton, sorry, as a serpent dancer. Miss Theodosia de Raymer Holy as a Japanese giantess. No idea what that is. Someone very large, I assume. <laughs> Miss Catherine Metcalf Moody as a Bulgarian princess. Mr. H.F. Taylor as the, quote, king of the cannibal islands, unquote. Mr. George Gilman Hall as a Chinese warrior. Mrs. Kate Jordan Vermilier as a vampire, plus many others. 
The infamous gong chimed once again at 7.30, alerting the trick-or-treaters to organize in the upper hall for a parade, which wound itself down the south staircase and through the rooms and veranda below to the dining room. The procession was led by Mr. Holly, owner and proprietor of the Holly Inn, who carried a gramophone playing the brass band version of Ludwig von Beethoven's Turkish Patrol March. Later, the costume guests played uh, at games of hide-and-seek, blind man's bluff, and happy is the miller. As the clock struck midnight, the bewitching hour began. The celebrants descended into the cellar, where they also bobbed for apples, consulted the magic mirror, and engaged in the mystical art of palm reading, and also forecasted fate and fortune through tarot cards. At long last, the evening came to a close as hideous, ghoulish ghost stories were told, sending many a chill up and down the spines of those present who listened squeamishly in the eerie flickering lights of the Hollyan's cellar. And that, my friend, was a Halloween party that was held at the Hollyan, we know it today as the Bush Holly House, the headquarters of the Greenwich Historical Society on Strickland Road in Koskob. That happened uh, around the turn of the 19th into the 20th century. So uh, you can enjoy that article and more. All you have to do is go to my blog site, yet another one. Um, and this one is writings of Jeffrey Bingham Mead.blogspot.com. My friends, those of you that have known me a long time know that back in the late 1980s and into the 1990s, one of my biggest activities with the Greenwich Historical Society and actually in preserving the town's history and heritage was the cleanup and the research into the town's over 63 cemeteries and burying grounds uh, that are found throughout the town. There's somebody that I would like to pay um, a special uh, thanks to. And, uh, and to express a deep, profound uh, gratitude to, and that would be Alex Pop. He is a Byram resident, and one of the things that he has been doing in recent years is taking care of and, um, uh, and, and actually um, acting as a steward um, for the old burying ground um, at Byram. This is the one that is located uh, on Byram Shore Road. It is one of the oldest cemeteries uh, in the town of Greenwich. It's a very picturesque area. You can actually you know, stand there and look out toward um, Long Island Sound. Now, when I did the research on this place uh, back in the um, late 1980s, I included uh, the main part of the cemetery as well as the lion plot and what we know now as the African-American uh, cemetery or what was uh, at one time known as the colored cemetery as a, a single place. That has uh, changed since that time, which is fine. But I wanted to uh, pay a special tribute to um, to Alex Pop for his many efforts um, and um, his appearances at uh, town meetings and uh, what have you uh, to uh, get more help uh, to preserve this particular uh, set of uh, cemetery sites uh, off of Byram Shore Road. I'm calling on um, anybody in town or even beyond who um, can spare a little bit of um, of time and effort to to help Alex and his family maintain of the cemetery to uh, to please contact him. You can do that by, um, I'd be more than happy to re relay a message, um, and you can do that by contacting me at Greenwich Town for All Seasons at gmail.com. Now, uh, when I was a columnist at Greenwich Time, I was at one time the local history columnist uh, for the uh, for the 
the daily newspaper here in Greenwich, um, I wrote an article called Towns Heritage on View at Byram's Gamecock Cemetery, the old burying ground at uh, Byram. Now, Gamecock Cemetery was a name that uh, William E. Finch Jr., the former town historian, now deceased, had given me. Of course, he corrected that a little bit later on. But I wanted to read an article that I had uh, published uh, about uh, this particular place. It was published on July 4th, Independence Day, in 1989. Um, an old burying ground, as my story went back in the day, can be a delightful and fascinating place to ponder the secrets of the past. One such site is not far from the Byram waterfront, where large homes on shoreline estates overlook the calm waters of Long Island Sound. This burying ground, we know it, of course, is the old burying ground at Byram, according to town historian William E. Finch, Jr., is on the corner of Byram Shore Road and Byram Dock Street. It is one of the most historically significant cemeteries in all of Greenwich. Cemetery was a community burial site for the early settlers, as well as early slaves and uh, people of color and uh, Native Americans, as I understand it. It occupies an area of about half an acre of land on the south side of Byram Shore Road. Under the shade of some large sassafras trees are numerous gravestones. Some are quite simple in style and small in size. The majority of these are mere fieldstone markers anonymously concealing the identities of those buried below. There are a number of sandstone or brownstone, granite, and marble markers, and most elaborate of these are located in the lion plot, located next to the main part of the cemetery. Many of the marble markers have been worn away due to the exposure to natural and man-made elements, probably most well-known being acid rain and air pollution. Some grave markers are broken or lying flat, and regrettably, some stones appear to be missing. It is said that Thomas Lyon Sr., the original settler of Byram, was buried somewhere in the cemetery in 1690, perhaps marked by one of the many fieldstone markers found here. His homestead still stands today on the south side of the Boston Post Road, where it was moved to in 1927. Built around 1670, I'm sorry, this central chimney salt box is possibly one of the oldest houses in Greenwich, uh, which we know now to be true, and sits as a landmark at this gateway to New England. Other Lyon family members are buried here, as well as members of the Banks, Sherwood, Mead, Peckwood, Peck, and, I'm sorry, and Merritt families, among others. It is said that in the extreme eastern corner of the cemetery, where the elevation declines, slaves of the old farming families of Byram are interred, and that is true, by the way, if I may interject. Back to my article. According to an article published in a 1931 edition of the Greenwich Graphic, the oldest dated gravestone in the cemetery is supposedly on a stone that reads M.B. 1717, September 18th. By the way, I went looking for that stone and I was never able to find it. So maybe you and Alex Pop could, and the others could turn around and look for that. If you do, please let me know if you find it. A survey of the cemetery is part of a, a town-wide project recording gravestone information for the Historical Society archives has turned up a number of small fieldstone boulder that once uh, at first glance appears insignificant. Um, a closer inspection indicates a crude ins inscription barely uh, legible. If this marker is the one belonging to M.B., who I assume is of the Banks family, it would be one of the oldest inscribed grave markers in the town. 
aside from the intricately designed gravestone of Gershom Lockwood at Tomax Cemetery, who died on March 12, 1718, aged 77 years. A fieldstone marker at the opposite end of the cemetery reads B.A.L., probably of the Lyon family, and the year of that is dated 1761. A few grave markers are inscribed with epitaph poems of loss and lament. One found at some cemeteries is on the gravestone of Martha, wife of Michael Clear, who died October 26, 1850, aged 64 years, 6 months, and 18 days. She apparently had been ill at the time of her death, for, as her epitaph indicates, quote, Affliction sore long time she bore, physician's skill was vain. To God did please to give her ease and free her from her pain. On the gravestone of Daniel Banks, died 17, or, uh, September 13, 1832, not long after his 30th birthday, is an epitaph that conveys both goodness and didactic wisdom when he informs the reader that, quote, Once I was a blooming youth, and always gave each man the truth, but mouth and virtue cannot save, but fit us for a peaceful grave. The epitaph of Mary Ann Merritt, who died in 1831 at the age of 22 years, 3 months, and 29 days, keenly expresses the sense of pain and loss felt by her parents upon her death. The epitaph reads as follows. She is lost, the rose that was with us, tis but transplanted to her native sky, when thou shalt mingle with departed clay, and thy freed spirit seeks the realm of day. Two Revolutionary War veterans are buried in the cemetery. Daniel Lyon was a sergeant and Captain Abraham Meade's Ninth Company Regiment. He and his fellow patriots were stationed at the Westchester border and placed under the command of General Wooster from October 1776 to January 1777 after the Battle of White Plains on October 28, 1776. He died on August 29, 1817, at the age of 60 years. Daniel Merritt of the 4th Company, 7th Continental Regiment, is buried here as well. He died on June 1, 1826, at age 70. The 4th Company was under the command of Captain Abraham Meade, and it is possible that this group saw combat in the Battle of Long Island Sound, as well as the Battle of White Plains, according to historian Spencer P. Mead's History of Greenwich. Some of the older noteworthies in the cemetery include Michael Clear, U.S. Navy. He died March 28, 1858. Nancy, wife of Daniel Coley, died August 13, 1833, and whose stone features a carved willow tree motif symbolizing or signifying mourning. Benjamin Fairchild, died August 31, 1866, is said to have been a blockade runner during the Civil War and may have lost his citizenship as a result. This is one of the best-maintained burying grounds of historic nature in the town of Greenwich. Again, I want to take you back to the fact this was written in 1989, <laughs> and it is still, by the way, very, very well-maintained, thanks to Alex Pop and uh, his family. Preservation of the site began in 1831, when four men were put to work under the Great Depression-era Town Employment Emergency Fund. A number of trees were removed, rubbish was cleared, the grass was cut, and gravestones were straightened. The grass is now cut by the town at taxpayers' expense. Again, that was back in 1989. 
As recent as last autumn, students and faculty from Western Junior High School, again 1989, adopted the cemetery as an ongoing project. Spearheaded by the Student Council government and their dedicated advisor, Patricia Ryan, and working in liaison with the Historical Society, the students and adult supervisors accomplished a successful cleanup of the site with plans for planting flowers and straightening stones in the future. The active participation of people of all ages and walks of life preserving such places is valuable, to say the least. One of my hopes is to see this site and others like it around town preserved by interested citizens of a community through what are called Friends Associations or a burial ground, preservation association for the site or whatever, to protect and conserve the gravestones and the grounds as well, which would save money for taxpayers. The old cemetery at Byram is a valuable historic treasure for Byram, an artifact of the past heritage of Greenwich and its early families. For the restoration and enhanced efforts by diligent citizens to preserve this and other sites are worthy and important to maintaining the continuity of our heritage. And that, my friends, was from an article that was written by me, uh, it was published on Independence Day, July 4th, in 1989. Sorry, I got my centuries mixed up. Um, and uh, that was uh, thanks to uh, my good friends over at uh, the Greenwich Time. You're in for a pleasant surprise at Coffee for Good, located in the 1856 Solomon Mead Italianate-styled stone mansion at 48 Maple Avenue, behind the Second Congregational Church. Coffee for Good has quickly emerged as one of Greenwich, Connecticut's top coffee houses. Its success is driven by a never-ending commitment to quality and inclusion. Coffee for Good shines as a unique nonprofit partnership between the Second Congregational Church and Abelis. It employs and trains people with disabilities through a self-sustaining platform so they can thrive in the community. The 1856 Solomon Mead House provides a 19th century style hip and unpretentious historical setting that evokes a setting filled with diverse people who are all inspired. Delightful staff, Super-friendly baristas, great coffee, pastries, and more. Coffee for Good provides free Wi-Fi, free parking, indoor and outdoor seating, with a relaxed local vibe that has become a popular study spot and destination for informal business meetings and gatherings. My friends, take it from me. The word about this gem has gotten around. Located in the historic 1856 Solomon Mead Italianate-styled stone mansion at 48 Maple Avenue in Greenwich, behind the Second Congregational Church, all part of the Putnam Hill Historic District and listed on the National Register of Historic Places, Coffee for Good is open daily, 8 a.m. to 5 p.m., except Sundays. You can learn more at coffeeforgood.org. You are listening to the Greenwich Town for All Seasons show podcast hosted by Jeffrey Bingham Mead. That's me, a direct descendant of the 17th century founders of the town of Greenwich, long known as the gateway to New England. The Greenwich Town for All Seasons show podcast is made possible by Peter F. Alexander, landscape architect of Site Design Associates, the Long Island Sound Institute, the Ambassador Museum United States of America, Kevin M.J. O'Connor of Jeffrey Matthews Wealth Management, and listeners like you everywhere. Thank you.
Well, my friends, it's that time to step back in time to Greenwich, Connecticut's Great Estates era. Now, my good friend, the late town historian William E. Finch Jr., referred to this period from 1880 to 1930 as the flowering of Greenwich, an age when the word Greenwich first became synonymous with the word millionaire. Now, the Junior League of Greenwich has played an impressive role through valuable projects and services as no one or no organization has ever done before or since. Now, one of those invaluable projects was the research and publication of a book that I highly recommend, The Great Estates, Greenwich, Connecticut, 1880 to 1930. It is richly illustrated with a wealth of details. Now, we're going to take a glimpse into a world in which the wealthy of this era constructed splendid mansions, outbuildings, landscapes, reminding us in the 21st century of a bygone era, you know, most likely never to to return. Now, the estate that I'm going to share with you today from that book um, is Old Mill Farm, which is located on Old Mill Road in, in the heart of Round Hill. Well, where else would it be? Anyway, um, just sit back and, um, and follow along. George Louis Ostrom, who lived from 1894 to 1955, chose a brilliant architect to transform his tract of 137 acres in northern Greenwich into an estate for his family and farm for his horses. Old Mill Farm, created from four parcels of land purchased in 1927, was developed into a spectacular English-style country house by architect Louis Bauman. A passionate horseman, George Ostrom hunted locally with the Fairfield and Westchester hounds. He served in that organization as honorary whip and as master. In addition, he was governor of the Greenwich Riding Association. He was also a member of several other clubs, including the Round, Round Hill in Greenwich and Rookery, Hangar, Bond, and University Clubs in New York City, where he worked. A successful financier, Ostrom was one of Wall Street's better-known underwriters. After graduating from Michigan State University in 1918, he served as a pilot in World War I. He was credited with shooting down the last German fighters of that war. In 1920, he married Emma King Riggs. They had three children. At the time of his marriage, he was working in New York for the firm of P.W. Chapman and Company. In 1926, he formed his own investment banking firm, George L. Ostrom and Company, which in the following few years financed hundreds of millions of dollars worth of public utilities properties. The firm became one of the nation's largest securities dealers in the utilities field. In syndication with other firms, George Ostrom also underwrote many large office buildings in New York. After World War II, he became involved in the acquisition and operation of various industrial and oil companies, both in the United States and abroad. The Ostroms divorced in the mid-1940s. George Ostrom remarried and moved to Virginia in 1949. As in Greenwich, he built a large country home there with stables, and he continued to participate in fox hunts as well as steeplechases and horse racing. Emma Ostrom retained Old Mill Farm and lived in Greenwich until her death in the early 1950s. During her lifetime, she was actively involved in the Greenwich Women's Exchange, serving on its board for over 10 years. 
well known in the Northeast for his country house designs. Louis Bauman revived and popularized the Jacobean and Elizabethan architectural styles. Having earned both his bachelor's and master's degrees in architecture from Cornell University, he began his practice with the preeminent firm of McKim, McKim, Mead, and White before forming his own firm in 1923. Old Mill Farm was one of his outstanding achievements, for which the Greenwich Board of Trade awarded him a medal in 1931. The house was exhibited at the Architectural League of New York in 1932 and was featured in several publications of that period. The original estate buildings and 63 acres of property remain intact today in the heart of Greenwich's horse country. A curving drive leads to the open meadow on which the main house is sited. The outbuildings are located to the right of and beyond the main house and slightly downhill from it. They include the stables, also designed by Lewis Bauman, and a small farm group. The main house sits on a gently sloping site, hugging the earth. At the rear, where the land drops away, the house is more open with its full height and mass visible. A tall stone wall, punctuated with a gate, lies to the left of the house. It visually directs the visitor to the stone-gabled entry, which is left of center in the facade. A massive stone and, chimney, and brick chimney stacked to the left and a second taller stone-faced gable to the right work with the steep Ludovici tile roof to form the major elements of the facade. The architectural effect is strikingly Elizabethan, massive, protective, asymmetrical, and monastic. The rear facade of Old Mill Farm is an encyclopedia of Elizabethan and Jacobean architectural details. Banks of leaded glass windows lighten the stone walls of the lower story. The second floor is built of half-timber with brick fill, the color harmonizing with the soft red tiles of the roof. Asymmetrically arranged gables give a sculptural quality to the facade. The chimney stacks as a counter as a counterpoints. The various projection, projections are juxtaposed against the shadows formed under archways and arcades. A raised terrace faced with stone forms the transition between the bulk of the house and the lawn that falls away from the building. A visitor enters Old Mill Farm under the limestone Tudor arch at the entry gable and passes through a vestibule of cut stone with a slate floor and on, and on into a magnificent stair hall. The Ostroms incorporated qualities of antique paneling in their home. The stair hall walls are clad with coffered paneling and the ceiling is heavily beamed. The staircase is reputed to be Elizabethan. Its large carved newel posts, spindles, and rails attest to attest its authenticity. Under Lewis Bauman's skilled guidance, it appears that the staircase was designed specifically for the house. The most notable room in the house is the Great Hall. Constructed of stone and timber, 
The walls rise two stories to meet a steeply pitched ceiling that continues upward to 40 feet above the floor. Timber ribs create a regular pattern against the white plaster. The steep pitch is supported by four heavily pegged arches that brace king posts. Gothic arches, repeating the rhythms of the ceiling arches, are used in conjunction with the ceiling ribs. A large stone-faced walk-in fireplace encased in oak paneling is centered on one wall. The paneling continues around the room and is kept at the second-floor height by a carved frieze resembling Gothic windows and Tudor rosettes. A minstrel gallery on the second floor looks down into the room, and the end wall is glazed with diamond-patterned windows with clerestory height. The windows contain stained-glass panels designed for the Ostroms and referring to events in their lives. There is, for example, the seal of the University of Michigan, Ostrom's alma mater. Adjacent to the Great Hall is a small library. Three walls are fitted with bookcases over cabinets. The fourth wall, with its central fireplace, shows off glorious Georgian antique pine boiserie that matches the other woodwork. The doors are also antique, and they match the richly carved door frames and their horizontal pediments, as well as the cornice molding and window framing. A bank of leaded glass windows looks out over the property. The library also has a fine plaster ceiling with a central medallion and perimeter molding in high relief. An intimate room the library is quietly elegant. Also decorated with exquisite Georgian woodwork imported by the Ostroms is the dining room of Old Mill Farm. More richly carved than that of the library, the dining room paneling is honey-colored, and the panels are divided by fluted pilasters that support a large cornice molding. The fireplace is accented by a deep and finely cut surround and topped by a large rectangle of molding designed to accept a painting. The dining room doors are capped with ornately carved triangular pediments. The ceiling in this large room is plaster with an atom-style central medallion and an oval line of high-relief plaster that follows the perimeter of the room. Also on the first floor is a spacious service wing, located to the right of the entry. It includes the pantry, the kitchen, and a three-bedroom staff apartment. The second floor of the Ostrom home includes a master bedroom suite of a bedroom, a dressing room, and a pair of baths. There are also seven other bedrooms and related baths divided into family rooms and guest rooms, as well as a second staff apartment of four bedrooms, a kitchen, and a bathroom. Of the outbuildings at Old Mill Farm, the stable is the most striking. A long, low building, the stable at one end, is built of stone and holds a five-room apartment for the groom. Attached to it are the actual stable built, stables built of wood. In addition to the tack room, which had a fireplace, all six box stall, are six box stalls. 
The stable section is punctuated by a series of heavy-timbered arches with a decidedly Elizabethan feeling. Between the arches, the siding is vertical boarding with groups of small, multi-paned windows. A large peaked tile roof, accentuated by vents, makes the stable appear close to the ground and strongly reflects the vision of Lewis Bauman. Another stone building on the property was designed to house the staff. Called the Community House, it was divided into four separate staff apartments. The grounds of Old Mill Farm consist of open lawns around the house featuring specimen plantings, a walled garden to one side of the house, and meadows that recede into the woods. There is a pond and a stream that flows through the northern edge of the land. One can easily envision the family's horses grazing in the pastures and the sounds of excitement from elegant parties given in the main house. Old Mill Farm was a horseman's haven, and an exceedingly elegant one at that. Well, Greenwich Before 2000 was published as an updated, revised edition of another favorite Greenwich history book of mine that I recommend, Before and After 1776, The Comprehensive Chronology of the Town of Greenwich. Greenwich Before 2000 goes through the year 1999, and it was adopted as a project by the Greenwich Historical Society, then made possible by the generous support and in honor of Russell S. Reynolds Jr., who, like me, is a direct descendant of the founders of the town of Greenwich in the 17th century. Mr. Reynolds and his family are well known for their numerous charitable bequests that have advanced the preservation of Greenwich's history for many years. Now, the book Greenwich Before 2000 is available in the Greenwich Library System for borrowing purposes. I believe you can also get this at the Greenwich Historical Society's Museum Store, or your favorite online bookseller. Now, on today's Halloween year 2022 show, um, we're going to go back in time, and I'm going to share with you um, what happened in history in Greenwich during the year 1779, and, well, we'll throw in 1782. Why not? This is during the period, of course, of the American Revolution and the Revolutionary War conflict. In year 1779, a British foray to North Stamford and Long Ridge cuts American guards to pieces at Byram and Pexland. On their return, they are ambushed at a defile in Round Hill and so hard-pressed that one of their regiments loses its standard. Lieutenant Colonel Tarleton is said to have commanded this British force. On February 10th of that year, a reinforcement of 100 men is sent to Horseneck, where General Parsons is inspecting the Coast Guard. Duty at that post, on account of proximity to the enemy, is considered, quote, more difficult and exacting than perhaps any other post on the Sound. Of course, it refers to Long Island Sound. On February 22nd, 1779, British General Tryon offers the suggestion to General Clinton of, quote, going out with a proper force to Horseneck and proceed to Greenwich and even to Norwalk, at both places where there are mills and some stores, if vessels were to be provided to bring us off Greenwich Neck or at Norwalk, both to be places of re-embarkation, covered by galleys or armed sloops, unquote. 
The next day, on February 23rd, General Tryon writes General Clinton that intelligence reports confirm the rebels, that means the Americans, are foraging and that their wagons, many drawn by oxen, still rendezvous at King Street from where they will draw their load to Peekskill. Tryon proposes to hit the rendezvous. On February 25th, a detachment of about 1,500 men commanded by General Tryon, consisting of three regiments of British regulars, one of Hessians, and two of, quote, loyal refugees, unquote, march east for Horseneck with the intention of surprising American troops the next morning and destroying the salt works. After a brief skirmish at Saw Pits, and by the way, if I can interject, Saw Pits refers to modern-day Portchester, the Americans retire over Byram Bridge, taking up the planks behind them. General Putnam forms his men in a line, quote, on a hill by the meeting house, unquote, but his flanks are turned, compelling a retreat with the loss of three cannons. The general himself is closely pursued by British dragoons, but he eludes them by riding down a, quote, steep, rocky steep, known at the time as Great Hill and later as Putts Hill, we know that today, of course. The townhouse used by the guardhouse during the war is burned by General Tryon's men. By the way, that townhouse would have been located where the Soldiers' Monument is, across from the Second Congregational Church. Putnam uh, collects reinforcements who harry the British as they retire after they, quote, destroyed a small salt work and burnt a schooner which lay at Mianus Creek, unquote. This retreat is so precipitate that the Americans capture several wagons loaded with baggage and plunder and 38 stragglers. On, a, on April 26, 1779, conforming to orders from General Washington, who believes the British are contemplating a move, General Parsons calls in his troops on duty as Coast Guard along the Sound, but leaves a detachment at Horseneck because, quote, removing immediately may put the inhabitants into a state of too great hazard, unquote. In May of 1779, the selectmen asked the General Assembly for relief, stating that, quote, hostile incursions of the enemy from land and water, unquote, require frequent military duty for the inhabitants. And as a result, quote, many of their fields lie open and uncultivated, unquote. Many families whose property was stolen in the Tryon raid, quote, are thereby reduced to want and distress, unquote. A gang of villains plunder their cattle and horses in the night. They ask that a committee be appointed to estimate the losses and provide aid. Uh, also in May of 1779, the General Assembly orders two 500-man regiments of militia raised to march, quote, with the utmost dispatch to Greenwich for the defense of the western frontiers, unquote. On June 18th, a Tory force from Oyster Bay, commanded by Captain Bonnell, lands at Greenwich about four in the morning. In a thick fog, they march through town. When they are seen, the local guard flees and several prisoners are taken. The inhabitants keep doors closed, but the invaders enter through windows, seeking arms and ammunition. They drive off 38 cattle, four horses, and their prisoners, including a preacher. 
Returning, they are attacked by 150 local guards. After a two-hour engagement with both sides firing cannons, the raiders return to Oyster Bay with their cattle and prisoners. On June 28, 1779, a party of raiders from Horseneck, led by Ben Kirby, whose father lives on Long Island, crosses the Sound at midnight and attacks the house of Abraham Walton at Musketo Cove, seizes him, and plunders the house, taking all the silver plate. They then round up several neighbors and carry them as prisoners to Connecticut to be interrogated. On July 12th, the minutes of the Governor and Council of Safety meeting note that nine Tories have been captured at Greenwich. On August 4th, 1779, a company of rangers raised in town and formerly commanded by Captain Sylvanus Meade is discharged. Twenty-four are retained as guards for the town by order of the Governor and Council of Safety. In October, General John Meade tells the General Assembly that the committee has not been able to estimate yet the damage from raids in Greenwich, and since then, quote, the enemy has made sundry incursions into that town, unquote, further distressing the people. Tax abatement is ordered for those most affected. Also in October, Mr. Murdoch, who is the pastor of the Second Congregational Church, follows British raiders who took his cows, reclaims them, sells them to the enemy, and buys British goods with the money which is illegal. Hmm, that's not good. <laughs> On November 30th of 1779, the Committee of the General Assembly estimates Greenwich losses occasioned by the February invasion by the British into Greenwich at 5,000 10 pounds. Moving on to the year 1780. Tories, driving a herd of cattle stolen from the town, are pursued over the ice on the sound by several Greenwich men who retake the herd. They run into an enemy force separate, and one, Richard Meade, is captured. In January, the General Assembly orders two companies to, quote, repair immediately to the town of Greenwich and join the guards now there for the defense of that important post, unquote. And eight additional companies are to, quote, take post there under command of General John Meade for the defense of that place, unquote. Also in January, Captain Sylvanus Meade, veteran of the French and Indian War and a captain of the Company of Rangers, is stalked by a group of cowboys and killed by a shot fired through the door of Ralph Peck's house in Mianus. By the way, the Ralph Peck house is still where it was built, uh, not far from the Mianus River Dam that you see uh, from um, East Putnam Avenue. Uh, so... Uh, a good thing that that is still there. Also in January, General John Meade, who for three years commanded American lines at Horseneck, petitions the General Assembly, quote, that he had been driven from his estate by the enemy, unquote. And while in military command, he had no allowance, quote, to the neglect and great injury of his private affairs, unquote. He is voted the sum of 400 pounds. January 18, 1780, meetings of Masonic Union Lodge No. 5 are moved from Stamford to Knapp's Tavern in Greenwich, and Knapp's Tavern, of course, refers to what we know today as Putnam Cottage, directly across the street from Christchurch Greenwich in the Putnam Hill Historic District. 
On January 18th also, early this morning, a detachment of 80 militia leaves Greenwich under Captain Samuel Lockwood and marches rapidly south into Westchester County in an attempt to surprise and capture Lieutenant Colonel Hatfield at his quarters in the Richard Morris house. After a short engagement in which three are killed, the house is fired and the occupants captured. British dragoons pursue and engage the militia, of whom 40 are captured and 23 killed. On February 4th, the minutes of the Governor and Council of Safety meeting note that seven suspected Tories of Greenwich are now in jail. On March 2nd, the town meeting votes to have the captains of the town militia receive the fines of delinquents for military duty and pay it out to the soldiers. On April 29, 1780, General Parsons asked the whaleboat fleet at Stamford and Horseneck to, quote, make incursions onto the island, and that would, of course, refer to Long Island, unquote, where his son Billy had been held, and there to gather up as many of the Tories as possible who had treated his son badly before his escape. On May 23, 1780, the Tory Colonel Delancey marches east to the Byron River, leaves his infantry to cover his retreat over the bridge, and with his cavalry surprises a small post at Horseneck, where he kills eight defenders and captures 36. Similar forays occurred on June 4th and June 16th. And then finally for the year 1780, Major Huggerford of Delancey's Westchester Refugee Battalion leads raids into Horseneck as far as North Street and before daylight attacks three different posts simultaneously. Fifteen defenders are killed and 25 prisoners are taken. And that, my friends, all comes from Greenwich Before 2000. Again, it was uh, published as an updated edition of Before uh, Before and After 1776, the Comprehensive Chronology of the Town of Greenwich, which you can get in the Greenwich Library System. Or you could also contact the Greenwich Historical Society's Museum Store at 203-869-6899. Well, back in 1911, there were some interesting things that happened in Greenwich for the Halloween holiday. Uh, One of them was a society event at the Greenwich Country Club. And another, well, I'll get to that. Let's just say that involved a missing head from a body. But first things first, (laughs) shall we? All right, this comes from the Greenwich News on November 3rd, 1911. And uh, the story is about members of the Greenwich Country Club um, have dinner on Halloween and are entertained. The orchestra, tired as farmers, favors of musical instruments, decorations of cats, spiders, owls, cornstalks, and pumpkins, witches tell fortunes, and mysterious four keeps things spooky, says the headline. Society to the number of about 300 attended the first Halloween party at the beautiful new Greenwich Country Club house. Tuesday evening, and that the affair was an entire success, goes without saying, being as it was under the efficient management of the House Committee, of which William H. Temple is chairman. Nothing was left undone. In fact, every detail to make the Halloween party one of long remembrance was there. 
The musicians were attired as farmers, and they played all the old-time melodies as well as some modern ones. Mrs. J.H. Flagler, Mrs. H. Durant Cheever, and Frederick Hilliard gave solos and duets. Mrs. Flagler giving a selection from opera. The club was decorated throughout with pumpkins and cornstalks, while mechanical cats and owls on the mantles kept up their motions throughout the evening. Then, too, there were spiders aplenty, while several witches as fortune-tellers mingled among the company. Great amusement was created during the evening by the, quote, mysterious four, unquote, hmm, all members of the club, each attired in black and wearing a skeleton mask. It was a case of who was who, and their identity remained a mystery until the close of the festivities, when it was ascertained that the merrymakers were Colonel Robert B. Baker, William H. Temple, R. Clark, and Mr. Hollybaird. The Halloween dinner was especially well prepared, the menu carrying with it everything which should have been there for such an occasion. There were musical favors. Many members had dinner parties that night, among them C.L. Jones, Barry Whale, A.A. Coles, R.A. Coles, E.B. Close, Colonel Robert B. Baker, Mr. Dickerman, H.G. Cheever, George Pynchon, W.T. Graham, A.L. Fennessy, J.H. Fennessy, Frederick Gotthold, Mrs. Frederick Rawall, Miss Claire Cooney, John Hark Johnson, and last but not least, Frederick Armstrong. There was another party that was um, held, by the way, in Greenwich, and uh, that was with Miss Louise Barnes, who entertains friends from the telephone exchange. A very pleasant party was held at the home of Miss Louise Barnes on Locust Street on last Tuesday evening when her telephone girlfriends were highly entertained. The house was very attractively decorated. There were a number of games played and a prize for each winner. After music and singing were indulged, all in all, they all partook in a delightful prepared supper, which was thoroughly enjoyed by everyone after which they departed for their respective homes, all declaring Miss Barnes a very charming hostess. Meanwhile, over in Belhaven, a very pleasant surprise party was given to Frank Kelleher on Halloween at his home in Belhaven. About 125 of his friends were present, every one being masked. Refreshments were served and dancing followed. All had a very enjoyable time and returned home in the quote, Wiesma hours of the morning. Hmm. Halloween surprise happened. About uh, 30 young people surprised Miss Emily Wall at her home on Prospect Street, said the paper. And that was on a Tuesday evening. The young people called about 9 o'clock and remained till past midnight, during which time music, dancing, and Halloween games were enjoyed, followed by a midnight lunch. That's an odd time to have lunch, but oh well. It was a very pleasant affair, says the uh, uh, says the uh, says the paper. And let's see what else do we have here. Oh yes, how could I forget this? Because I just mentioned it to you. There's a headline from the same edition of the Greenwich News on November third, nineteen eleven, and it says head missing from body. Now, obviously, this doesn't happen very often in Greenwich, but I shall elaborate further. Wrangle fight, three pistol shots, body identified. Quote, turn on the light, 
roll him over and see who he is, unquote, said R.H. Vanderslice Tuesday evening about five o'clock. Following a wrangle, three pistol shots and several distressing groans in the rear hall of the Abrams building. Many who were in Mr. Vanderslice's billiard hall at the time, as well as the other occupants of the building on the upper floor, hurried to the scene of the commotion. At the foot of the stairs, lying closely to the rear door of the new undertaking establishment, was the form of a man with his head about two feet from his body. Great excitement prevailed, and in an instant passers-by were aware that someone had been murdered in cold blood within a stone's throw of the police station. Ed Haggerty of the news monotype department was the first to venture an investigation. He rushed downstairs, took the prostrate form in his arms, and rushed it upstairs with it, rushed upstairs with it, he had just reached the upper landing when he met Dr. O'Connell, who, by the way, is always on his job and under an electric lamp when they started to solve the mystery. Quote, hard to identify a man without his head, unquote, suggested Dr. O'Connell. Or, uh, uh, yes, <laughs> Dr. O'Donnell, yes. Where is it, quote, unquote, downstairs, replied the monotype artist in a tremulous voice. Quote, I'll get it. And he did. But when the mask was removed, they found a, quote, scarehead the, of the news, vintage of August 1909, wrapped about a bunch of miscellaneous papers enclosed in an old derby hat of an earlier period. It was then time to laugh. I don't know if I would have, but oh well. It was one of those Halloween jokes, and the perpetrators were Pete Connolly, James Flynn, and Hiram Bates of the news composing room. Selectman Crawford, Joe Whelan, Dr. O'Donnell, Dr. Halgate, and other uh, people in the building uh, of the body said it was the best joke ever. Hmm. <laughs> well, I'll tell you that. Um, that all comes from the Greenwich News, dated November 3rd, 1911. All this, by the way, was on the first page. <laughs> You are listening to the Greenwich Town for All Seasons show podcast hosted by Jeffrey Bingham Mead. That's me, a direct descendant of the 17th century founders of the town of Greenwich, long known as the gateway to New England. The Greenwich Town for All Seasons show podcast is made possible by Peter F. Alexander, landscape architect of Site Design Associates, the Long Island Sound Institute, the Ambassador Museum United States of America, Kevin M.J. O'Connor of Jeffrey Matthews Wealth Management, and listeners like you everywhere. Thank you. Well, Judge Frederick Augustus Hubbard was prolific, he was gifted, and he was also a lawyer, writer, and storyteller. Now, his remarkable life here in Greenwich, Connecticut spanned from the end of the 19th century to the first third of the 20th century. Uh, he used a pseudonym, which I find rather amusing. Others do as well. It was Ezekiel Lemondale. That was the name uh, that he used as an author for a column that was uh, published 
uh, in the local papers called The Judge's Corner, and he wrote about what he called <laughs> Cracker Barrel stuff. Now, we're indebted to Frank Nicholson, who collected Judge Hubbard's Greenwich articles, and he published them in compendium form as Greenwich History, The Judge's Corner, 150 Vintage Newspaper Columns by Frederick A. Hubbard, selected, edited, and indexed by Frank Nicholson. So, there you go. All right. On today's show, we are going to feature column number 85. It dates from September 25th, 1930. Its headline is Rockefeller Park and its relation to the litigation involving, quote, one elm, unquote, a a restriction in a deed, employment not universal, and changing the name of Sound Beach. So it goes as follows. A letter in the basket asks the reason for a broken wall on East Putnam Avenue, which was recently rebuilt. This was once in front of the home of William Rockefeller, named by him One Elm, after the great tree by the Riven Wall. The correspondent has read newspaper reports of litigation over the subject, but he seeks for information governing the underlying principles of the controversy. Thereby hangs a tale. William Rockefeller came to Greenwich 52 years ago at the age of 35. For a short time, he had lived in the village of Ossining, then called the village of Sing Sing in the town of Ossining. The former name was too suggestive of the prison, hence the change, which came many years later. On that lot then stood the pillared house, which was later moved under the hill east of Dr. Hyde's house. The history of this house, then owned by the estate of Robert Mead, appeared in this column November 21, 1929. Mr. Rockefeller was a handsome young man, expensively dressed, but with perfect taste and with a bit of a red flower always in the lapel of his coat. He lived in the pillared house for a year or two and then purchased the place, sold the house to Mrs. Corelli Knapp, who moved it to its present location. Seven years before that, no man of means built a new house without surmounting it with a cupola. Such an impediment to beauty never had any practical value, but examples of them are still seen in rural villages. Among their more humble neighbors, they seem to be an evidence of wealth. And occasionally, under the appeal of good taste and good sense, they remove the removal took place, for they made excellent hen houses. But when Mr. Rockefeller made his purchase, the long branch and far rockaway style of architecture had succeeded the cupola period. Therefore, the new house to be built in the prevailing style was built by Mertz Brothers with a graceful tower 125 feet high. But the lot was only 158 feet wide. It never suited the owner. His land was too restricted, but he lived there as a summer house for 13 years, constantly endeavoring to purchase on both sides of him. He built the beautiful diamond-cut stone wall that recently suffered the mauling. Then, in June 1890, came Lamon Harkness. He had been a cowboy on the Western Plains. He was a rich man, but he did not realize it. His 11,285 shares of the original stock in the old Standard Oil Trust, inherited from his mother, 
brought him $33,855, which he never knew how to spend. And so he invested it in more SOT and contented himself with a single horse attached to a surrey. Later came the 20% cash dividend, extra stock dividends, and liberal distribution of pipeline stocks until, on one occasion, he is said to have remarked with great annoyance, quote, it keeps coming all the time and I don't know what to do with the pesky stuff. <laughs> when he opened his initial checking, check account at the Greenwich Trust Loan and Deposit Company, it was an amount larger than the capital stock of the bank. Hmm. West of the home of Mr. Rockefeller was the house then occupied by Professor William G. Peck of Columbia University. He had purchased it of Henry M. Benedict. It was an old house built in 1807 by Beale M. Lewis, a wealthy New York lawyer but a native of Greenwich. It was a well-proportioned house but of simple architecture consisting of a central box-like construction with two of lesser size on either side of it. And it had the cupola which antedated the usual square construction of 1870. This one had eight sides with as many windows. Mr. Harkness, upon acquiring both the Rockefeller and Peck houses, subsequently tore them down, and the land with many acres besides was purchased by those who named the whole tract Rockefeller Park, upon which there are now numerous homes, some of them facing Millbank Avenue. New streets were laid out, and a portion of the property was named Putnam Terrace a deed-restricted development on East Putnam Avenue between Millbank and Washington Avenues and includes all of Lenox Drive, Lexington Avenue, and Lawrence Street. But without considering the growth of the town and possible change in the condition of adjoining property, the grantors inserted in their uniform deed a covenant, quote, running with the land, unquote, that perpetually it should be devoted to strictly residential purposes. Therefore, any purchaser of a lot, however remote from Putnam Avenue, can compel any lot owner to comply with the condition of this deed. Later came the zoning law, making the Putnam Avenue lots within the business district. And the present owners doubtless bought under the belief that such lots could be used for business purposes and started to build where the wall was torn down and recently rebuilt. Then came an injunction issued at the, in, at the instance of those who claimed that the restriction in their deeds antedated the acts of the zoning board and took precedence over them, and the superior court has so decided. It is not probable that the Supreme Court of Errors will decide otherwise. A restriction in a deed in, perpetu in perpetuity is a pretty serious matter. Eighty-three years ago, a similar restriction was placed on a New York section called Murray Hill. All the land between Madison and Lexington Avenues at 34th Street is hampered by such restrictions, although business is conducted in most of the old houses. While the restrictions are now of no more than the old town pump, it has been impossible to remove them. Title companies are governed entirely by what the records reveal. There is no compromise. They control the money for great loans necessary in the construction of modern buildings. 
It preserves this central section of the city forever for residential houses of the one-family type. In reference to a similar blight on our central section, there is only one way to overcome it, and that is by quitclaim deeds from every plot owner in Rockefeller Park releasing the restriction. Sometime that may be done, but it will require a big bankroll to accomplish it. The residents of Sound Beach are becoming dissatisfied with the name of their flourishing community, and with good reason. But in 1870, when Amasa A. Marks gave it the name, it was quite appropriate. The fine beach was open to the public and farmers from Banksville, Stanwich, Round Hill, and even as far away as Bedford. After harvest time, made it a point to give their families an outing on the broad beach. Often they would camp out for a week or two under the great oaks that grew on the point. They had no right there, but it must be remembered that 60 years ago, the town had a small population, and the particular land was invaded, thus invaded, was useless for cultivation, and by its owners, considered of but little value. When J. Kennedy Todd bought Old Greenwich Point in 1884, he paid only $1,500 for the five acres of woodland on the extreme end of the point, and the balance at $287 an acre. When the name was given, Mr. Marks probably, possibly thought conditions would remain unchanged, and certainly there was no one of sufficient prophetic vision to realize what has come to pass in this last half century. Greenwich seems to be a popular name in the United States, possibly because of the romantic history of Greenwich in England, from hence the name comes. New York has one of them, about 30 miles from Troy, and Rhode Island has an East Greenwich. An account of the two appeared in this column some months ago. The suggestion to name Sound Beach East Greenwich would certainly cause confusion in the mails. And with our post office and the one in New York State, there is so much mixture of letters that each office has always exchanged local telephone directories for the purpose of establishing correct addresses. It is well to remember that in point of age, Sound Beach makes priority over Greenwich, which for years was called Horseneck. The Indians called what is now called Sound Beach Monacoe. The word is hyphenated to emphasize its euphonious sound. The name was gradually limited to the point alone, which later became Elizabeth Neck, and was retained for many years. Later it became Old Greenwich Point, changed by Mr. Todd to Innes Arden. It received its first English name from Elizabeth Feeks, who, under the first Indian deed dated July 18, 1640, became a part owner and lived with her husband, John Feeks, on the beautiful point. Good Ma Feeks, as the record calls her, was a daughter, daughter-in-law, of John Winthrop, governor of Massachusetts, with little intermission from 1630 until his death in 1640. She and her husband, with Captain Daniel Patrick, Captain John Underhill, Jeffrey Ferris, and a few others were the first settlers, and they established themselves along the shore of the Sound. Granager Horseneck was only a suburb of Old Town, as it was once called, and later Old Greenwich. 
Why not return to the original name and consider Greenwich as a suburb? Let the tail wag the dog. Recalling that for two or three years, the post office name of Cascob was Bayport, while the railroad company refused to change the name of the station, and the school district was still Cascob, it was a safe bet that the name Sound Beach will never be changed to East Greenwich. On the same main railroad line, the post office department will not likely, if it can be helped, to impose on its railway mail clerks the proper distribution of letters to two stations of the same name 150 miles apart. And the railroad company, at the instance of the post department, postal department, is likely to refuse to change the name of the station. Many of our readers will recall when poor little Bayport was only six feet square, being part of a small room where the residents of Coscob went to, for their daily mail. Can such an indignity happen at Sound Beach? Signed, Frederick A. Hubbard. Well, if you've driven or walked on Strickland Road in Coscob, you have very, very likely passed by a fenced-in area at Strickland Road and the intersection with Laughlin Avenue. It's not far from the Coscob Mill Pond. And this place is an old cemetery that is located in the Coscob Historic District on Strickland Road. And this happens to be the second oldest cemetery in the town of Greenwich. Now, the cemetery itself is actually um, much larger. Uh, it isn't just that fenced-in area, but includes uh, quite a bit of the uh, the land behind the cemetery and um, uh, going further toward the, the mill pond itself. Um, there's an article that I published in the Greenwich Time when I was a columnist there. Um, it dates from August 17th, 1990. The title of this is A Glimpse of Town's History at Coscob Historic Cemetery. Um, and you can find the text along with some uh, more modern uh, color photos that I have posted at the following site. Writings of Jeffrey Bingham Mead.blogspot.com. You can go and you can read that at your leisure, but I'd like to share it with you on the podcast today. And it goes as follows. Again, the title of the article is A Glimpse of Town's History in Coscob's Historic Cemetery. The old cemetery at Coscob, located within the Strickland Road Historic District, is Greenwich's second oldest burying ground. Though only a few legible headstones remain, this site is steeped in history from the days from the town's early days. It is here that many of the early settlers of the town who crossed the Mianus River in 1672 are said to be buried. A small area featuring the few remaining gravestones is bordered by an iron fence, although it is well known that the large field adjacent to it contains the unmarked graves of early settlers, their identities forever hidden. The prominently inscribed grave markers are encased in concrete in an early effort to preserve them. This was through action taken years ago by First Selectman Wilbur Peck, who himself was a direct descendant of the town's founders. The oldest grave marker with an inscription at this site commemorates Benjamin Mead, who died on February 22, 1746, at the ripe age of 80 years, which was quite an accomplishment in those days. 
His stone is only one of a handful in Greenwich that is carved from slate. A closer inspection reveals a partial death head with wings motif, bordered by floral work on either side of the stone. Benjamin was one of the early settlers of Koskob, and he is credited as having set aside this land for the cemetery in circa 1710. His homestead on Orchard Street is a familiar landmark to local residents. I know I express popular, popular felt gratitude that the owner has painstakingly preserved the historical integrity of this classic Yankee New England salt box homestead in contrast to transient real estate speculators who might have torn it down. The researchers involved in the Historical Society's Signs of the Times house plucking program have dated this fine homestead at 1797 making it one of the oldest houses in Greenwich and the oldest Mead family homestead remaining today. The gravestone of Obadiah Mead is nearby. It is carved of brownstone and features a badly worn death head motif with wings and floral designs on either side. This young man, said to be the son of Benjamin Mead, died on April 27, 1759, aged 39 years. A legend passed down through the generation surrounds Sarah Gardner, a young woman who died in Kasgab on October 24, 1795, and who is buried at this site. According to historian Spencer Mead, Sarah, quote, was on a trip from New York to Boston by stage when taken sick, and was cared for at the old brush house at Kasgab during her illness. The nature of her illness is unknown to us, and the brush homestead was sadly torn down long ago, preserved only through photographs. Her brownstone marker does leave the reader with a thoughtful reminder commonly found in today's old burying grounds. Quote, Behold and think as you pass by, as you are now, so once was I. As I am now, so you will be. Prepare to die and follow me. Hmm. A few plain fieldstone markers protrude from the ground, as does a small marble stone, and with them legends of others supposedly buried here. It has been said, for example, the chief Koskokoba is buried here, with some believing other Indians were interred at the site. Many for years thought that from this man Koskob took its name, a notion Spencer Mead and others have pointed out to be erroneous as well as the assumption that the cemetery was an Indian burying ground. Another Mead family member thought to have been buried here is Captain Sylvanus Mead. He was a veteran of the French and Indian Wars and active in the War of the Revolution on the Committee of Safety and captain of the Company of Rangers. Sylvanus was tragically killed by a group of men known as cowboys who unmercilessly plundered and relentlessly killed both Americans and British, showing loyalty to no one except themselves. This event happened at the historic Ralph Peck House, which still stands today facing the Minas River, off River Road Extension, in 1780. Spencer Mead wrote long ago, the cowboys found Sylvanus at the homestead and, quote, one of them knocked at the door. He called out from within, who's there? when one of them answered by firing through the door. The ball struck Captain Meade, wounding him fatally, and he died the following day. Some of the homeowners on the west side of Strickland Road may be surprised to discover that graves once occupied the sites of their homes and front yards. 
These were removed and said to have been reinterred nearer to the mill pond. When the course of the road was cut through the cemetery many, many years ago and witnessed by local residents. Despite the fact that many of the individual settlers' graves in the old cemetery Kaskab are unmarked, we of the latter 20th century are fortunate to have one of Greenwich's oldest historic sites still with us. Recognized as an ancient community burial place and maintained by the town government, the second oldest cemetery is steeped in mystery and history and enduring example, offering those who ponder the messages and legacies of its past a crack in the door that opens to the past. And this was found or published by the Greenwich Chime under the name A Glimpse of Town's History in Koskop's Historic Cemetery. It was published on August 17, 1990. That year, by the way, was the year of the 350th anniversary of the founding of Greenwich. Um, and uh, you can read this article at your leisure, uh, and you can also see some modern uh, postings of uh, color photographs that I have put there by going online to writings of jeffreybinghammead.blogspot.com. Well, my friends, back in the year 1907, the Greenwich News reported on how Halloween was celebrated throughout the town of Greenwich. This comes from the edition on Friday, November 1st, 1907. I'd like to share this with you. The headline is, Celebrated Halloween, Many Parties in Greenwich Last Night. Miss Kate Roberts gave a very delightful Halloween party at her home on Greenwich Avenue to the guests of the house and their friends. The event took place on Wednesday evening instead of on Thursday evening on account of the high school dance, which many of those present were going to attend. A musical entertainment was furnished by Professor Albert Anguish, who rendered, among other selections, several of his own compositions by Miss Julia Walsh, Placito, and Miss Ther Teresa Clark, Contralto. After the, this fortune-telling by various ingenious methods was indulged in, the predictions were always immensely pleasing to everyone, but the person whose fortune was being told, hmm, popping corn, roasting chestnuts, toasting marshmallows furnished a store of amusement and of good things to eat. One of the features of the evening was a chestnut hunt, a number of chestnuts were hidden in various parts of the parlor, and everyone scratched for them, or searched for them, I'm sorry. It was pretty close among three of the searchers until Miss Morgan of Sound Beach came across a copy of a local newspaper, parentheses, not the news, and she easily came off winner. As a prize, she received a lantern of unique and pretty design. It is expected that with the aid of this, she will be able to attend Thursday night prayer meetings in Sound Beach quite regularly. It came in very handily, as the town had refused to appropriate money for more lights in Sound Beach this year. Miss Nellie Hopkind received a booby prize, a very natty little red cap, 
Following this, there was singing by a chorus of mixed voices led by Judge Charles D. Barnes, whose rich baritone voice won him much applause. One of the most interesting diversions was a guessing game at the close of which Charles E. Minor gave an exhibition of his remarkable rational five pa- rational of powers. <laughs> he declared that he could guess anything which the party might think of in the room. A pencil dot on a tablecloth was selected. He succeeded by clever questioning in naming it. Among those present were Miss Morgan of Sound Beach, Miss Fisk, Mrs. Murray, Miss Teresa Clark, Miss Julia Walsh, Miss Anna Hopkins, Miss Nellie Hopkins, Miss Rebecca Bennett, Miss Albert, Mr. and Mrs. Parrish, Charles E. Minor, S. Augustus Brush, Benjamin E. Kelly, Judge C.D. Burns, Lieutenant A.S. Todd, Norman Talcott, and Professor Albert Anguish. One of the most pleasing events of the year at the high school was the Halloween dance Thursday evening. Given by the Seton Science Club and the Girls' Athletic Association, assisted by the Boys' Athletic Association, it was held in the banquet hall of the building, which was decorated very attractively. The decorations were the work of students and teachers, and they consisted of autumn leaves, stalks, and ears of corn, pompous grass, mangelworts, squash, gourds, pumpkins, citrus, and other products of the fields artistically arranged. In addition to these, there were drawings on the blackboard supposed to be particularly appropriate to the occasion. Among these drawings were a large green cat with uncanny eyes, a red witch riding on a broomstick, two cats fighting on a back fence with the rising moon in the background. Or was it a pumpkin? Hmm. Particularly striking among these artistic efforts was one by Albert Rennie, showing a colored damsel and her ebony swan perched on a crescent moon. The man's hat hung carelessly on one of the horns. According to the picture, they were much interested in each other. Under it was written, If a Man in the Moon. The dance was well attended, and everyone seemed to have a delightful time. Refreshments were served by the girls of the Seton Science Club. The committee in charge of these refreshments consisted of Mrs. Florence Campbell, Florence Harp, and Ethel Lee. On the entertainment committee were Mrs. Georgetta Ferris, Helen Bowles, Sadie Loudon, Ethel Raymond, Gerald Daly, Clifford Wilmot, Albert Rennie, Arthur Duff, William Hillis, Lois Bender, and William Crichton. The decorating committee were Mrs. Agnes Comiskey, Mayor Marie Merritt, and Sadie Green. And that, my friends, was how, at least in part anyway, Greenwich, Connecticut celebrated the Halloween holiday in the year 1907. Back in 1990, I penned an article that was published on November 23rd of uh, that year in the Greenwich Time in my column on the local history. Um, and it was about a cemetery 
that um, I was very familiar with, and those of us that grew up in Round Hill, we passed by it all the time. And of course, it is located on an appropriately named road called Burying Hill Road. Um, and uh, it stretches between Round Hill Road and uh, Lake Avenue. Um, and uh, this particular cemetery is located in a rather um, interesting location uh, on Burying Hill Road. Um, for those of us that grew up there, especially in the wintertime, um, the hill that um, uh, passed by, or the stretch of road that passed by Burying Hill um, itself uh, was a very, very steep incline or decline, depending on which way uh, you were driving or walking or maybe riding your horse or whatever the case may be. And um, I remember when um, I was uh, growing up there that I would have to really uh, drive very, very fast in order to get up that hill if we were uh, driving in the snow. But anyway, that's not the subject of, uh, of my comments here. Actually, it's about the cemetery itself. And again, this article was um, in my writings uh, of uh, Greenwich Time. You can find this and many other articles about the history of the town uh, at writingsofjeffreybinghamme.blogspot.com. And the title of this article is A Landmark in Round Hill, Burying Hill, uh, and it was published in the Greenwich Time on November 23, 1990. When I was growing up in backcountry Greenwich years ago, I would sometimes pass the old cemetery at Burying Hill. This site, encompassing about one-third of an acre, was overgrown and neglected then, as it was for the most part today. The taller tombstones nearer the roadside seemed to struggle for recognition above the weeds and overgrowth. I did not realize it in my teenage and college years, not so long ago, that I'd be back to Burying Hill to explore its mysteries and solicit volunteers to clean up the cemetery. This historic burying ground is the oldest graveyard in Round Hill. It is at the top of a very, very steep hill known to us more for its notorious reputation as a traffic hazard in the winter snow than for its enigmatic legends in local history. In our times, the cemetery is surrounded by estates in one of the town's most exclusive areas. 200 years ago, most all of this land was either wooded or sparsely settled farmland. As a community burying ground, this plot was set aside by the early settlers for common use, and it is here that they sleep forever. The earliest carved gravestone here is a small fieldstone marker with the date 1762, May 3, A.D. The identity of the soul underneath is unknown and likely to stay that way. This is the case for most of the grave markers here, which are uncarved. Among a number of the other gravestones is the tall marble gravestone belonging to Nehemiah and Sophia Brown, who died in 1810 and 1796 respectively. It is in the shape usually called a round top with shoulders, almost like a gateway to heaven above. A faded urn is carved on the top front face. Nearby is the marble memorial still home to Jonathan Knapp, who died on June 8, 1796, at the age of 44 years. His epitaph reads as follows, Though all created light decay, and death close up our eyes, Thy presence makes eternal day where clouds can never rise. The grave marker of Rachel, wife of Phineas Rundle, lies broken and leaning on a nearby stone wall with a call to the reader, quote, Hark from the tomb, a doleful sound. The Rundles, like the Knapps, Browns, and other families, 
were an old family in Greenwich, especially in the northern areas of the town. One of their homesteads is nestled at the corner of Lake Avenue and Lower Cross Road. It is probable that some of those buried at Bringing Hill lived here and in other such homesteads in the Round Hill area. Proper spelling and sentence structure were not among the finer skills of those who carved many of the earliest tombstones at Bringing Hill or elsewhere. The word deceased, quote-unquote, on the fieldstone marker of I.K., perhaps one of the naps, who died on, quote, June ye 3, A.D. 1766, where the letter D is spelled backwards. One stone that intrigued me concerned the inscription on the simple field stone marker of Amy Palmer, who died in 1801. The carver, apparently forgetting to properly line up the name and date on separate lines, simply carved the inscription in a run-on fashion so that it appears as Amy Palmer deceased 1801, 44 years. Hmm. Also distinctive is the marker that says, quote, Here lies the body of William Rundle, quote unquote, who died November 1788. This marker is again of local field stone, carved to resemble a round top with shoulders. Almost all of the fieldstone gravestones in the center area of Bring Hill have no inscriptions, and the fieldstones hide forever the identities of those buried, shrouded in mystery forever. I recall from an earlier cleanup sponsored by the Historical Society a tale passed down from the Revolution which may unlock the mystery of these rows of plain fieldstones. History records an incident in which the notorious British General Tarleton and soldiers under his command were returning from a raid. They were ambushed in the area of John Street by the local citizenry, and many of the British soldiers were killed or wounded. As historian Spencer P. Meade wrote earlier in the century, that is, uh, the early 20th century, quote, the whole populace around collected in front of the enemy to attack and worry on their return. An ambuscade was formed at a defile at Round Hill, where the road passes through steep rocks overgrown with thick laurel. At other places on the return, the British and Tories were sorely pressed, but here are a deadly fire poured in upon them, killing and wounding the great numbers, quote-unquote. It is probable, then, that these soldiers and Tories in this battle in the heart of historic Round Hill were interred at Burying Hill, as it was the only such cemetery in the area, and this explains the rows of fieldstone markers. Burying Hill will no doubt continue to intrigue and fascinate others now and in the future who may come to ponder the secrets of this historic site. The mysteries of Braying Hill will forever be hidden, yet my hope for the future of the site in its needed preservation will not be as elusive. The Historical Society in liaison with some fine young people have, from time to time, cleaned up this site. Surely an association of Friends of Braying Hill involving local residents and descendants could work cooperatively to care for, restore, and preserve this hallowed place, one of Round Hill's oldest and most historic, unique historic sites. Now that concludes the article, but I wanted to add um, a couple of, um, of uh, comments, if I could, an update, if, uh, if you don't mind. 
Fortunately, um, after that article was published and we had some uh, cleanups with uh, Boy Scout groups and, um, and others, some of the area residents in the Burying Hill and Round Hill area indeed decided to take on the, uh, the role of caring for the, um, for the cemetery. And to this day, now remember this was written in 1990 and we're now in year 2022, that cemetery is now uh, one of the um, best preserved and best cared for um, uh, old cemeteries in uh, the, uh, the Round Hill area. And to those residents and to um, uh, our, our town officials in Parks and Trees Department and uh, others, uh, I want to convey my sincerest gratitude uh, to those of you who um, have um, taken on the responsibility of caring for this very unique and fascinating cemetery. The other thing that I will tell you is this, is that the home that was um, lived in uh, by Nehemiah Brown and his wife Sophia actually is still around, and it is over on uh, Round Hill Road and John Street. In fact, it is the house immediately next to the um, uh, the first church of, uh, of Round Hill, right at the intersection. A very, very old house indeed. In fact, one of the oldest um, in uh, that part of the uh, the town. So one thing that I will mention as I conclude this, my friends, is, um, is this. Um, you are welcome to go and to explore these uh, cemeteries and burying grounds. One of the things that we do ask, of course, is that um, you not litter uh, and that uh, you take uh, careful care of um, not handling any of the, uh, the gravestones or leaning on them. They are, in many cases, very, very delicate. Uh, but you are welcome to go and to ponder the mysteries uh, of um, these fascinating historic sites on your own. And indeed, while the, while the weather is still mild um, on this beautiful um, October season, I hope that you do. Well, ladies and gentlemen, I want to thank you very much for tuning in to the 28th of October 2022 annual Halloween episode of the Greenwich Town for All Seasons show podcast hosted by me. I'm Jeffrey Bingham Mead, a direct descendant of the 17th century founders of the town of Greenwich, Connecticut. The town was founded on July 18, 1640, and Greenwich is one of America's most interesting and extraordinary communities. You and your Greenwich stories are a part of our history, and we're very, very glad to have you. I want to thank uh, my good friends for making the podcast possible. That would be Site Design Associates, the Long Island Sound Institute, the Ambassador Museum, United States of America, Mr. Kevin M.J. O'Connor of Jeffrey Matthews Wealth Management, and listeners like you everywhere. Now, this has probably been the longest show that... Um, I have ever done since I started the podcast, but as you could tell, there was a lot to uh, to cover. Um, but one of the things, of course, I did not get to were the um, activities going on at the Greenwich Historical Society. So one of the things I would like to do is to do, direct you to go online to GreenwichHistory.org and look under the events section of the menu. You will find all sorts of things that are going on. So for example, the Life and Art, the Greenwich Paintings of John Henry Twachman exhibit has been up and running since October 19th. I've been to see the exhibit and I highly recommend it. There are um, associated programs with the uh, exhibit that includes the upcoming Coffee with a Curator, which is going to be on November 10th. That's with exhibition curator Lisa N. Peters. Um, and also there will be a uh, 
workshop with Dimitri Wright, retracing Twachman's footsteps, painting and uh, plein air in Koskab. That will be on Saturday, November 12th. Um, and a, a host of other uh, programs that are going on associated with that exhibit. I would also draw your attention uh, to the fact that the next Tavern Garden Market will be on November 2nd. Um, and uh, that is something to look forward to. On November 3rd, there is Story Barn with Bonnie Levison. Uh, I mentioned the uh, Coffee with Curator and the Plain Air Painting Workshop with Dimitri Wright. Um, on November 15, there is a Curator Lecture, Twachman and Monet. And then finally, for the month of November coming up, is Create in the Barn, Pumpkin Succulent Centerpiece. That sounds really fantastic. You can find out about all that and more by going online to GreenwichHistory.org. Now remember, you can always contact me at GreenwichAtownForAllSeasons at gmail.com. You can learn more about the show by going online to GreenwichAtownForAllSeasons.blogspot.com. We're on Facebook and Twitter. You can look us up there. Um, I want to thank you all very much uh, for listening to um, the Halloween show. It's one that I always look forward to, and I hope that you do as well. Our next show is going to be scheduled for this coming Friday, November 4th, year 2022. And I look forward to being back with you again with more about the history of Greenwich, Connecticut. See you later. Have yourself a great day. Happy Halloween to everyone. Stay safe and well out there. Bye-bye.